ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You're listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com slash news slash breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. This is no longer a figurative mob. This is a literal mob, uh, and inevitably the proceedings, uh, despite best efforts retained, we, we would move for a mistrial. First verdict form I have is the state of Georgia versus Travis McMichael. Mr. McMichael, please stand. Count one, malice murder. We, the jury, find the defendant, Travis McMichael, guilty. Oh. I'm going to ask that whoever just made it out first be removed from the court, please. And let the word go forth all over the world that a jury of 11 whites and one black in the deep south stood up in the courtroom and said that black lives do matter. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm joined again by Asia Simone Burns, the AJC's watchdog reporter. This episode focuses on the sentencing hearing for Greg and Travis McMichael and for Roddy Bryan. As you know, all three men were convicted of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery on February 23, 2020. But before we take you back into the courtroom, AJC public safety reporter Shadia Busaid and I sat down with prosecutor Linda Donikoski and district attorney Flynn Brody prior to the sentencing hearing. We wanted to get their perspective on how they prosecuted the case. Shadi was with us in Brunswick throughout the entire trial and joined us for a few episodes earlier this season. And on sentencing day, he was in Brunswick again while we were tuned in on live streams. I wonder what it was like for him being back in the courtroom and seeing Donikoski so deeply in her zone after having seen her softer side during the interview. But don't get me wrong, even during the pretty casual conversation we had with her in the DA on Zoom, she was like she is in the courtroom. Authoritative, controlled and articulate. I'm always concerned about the outcome 24-7. Oh my gosh. Um, I've, I've been worried for two years about the outcome of this case. Um, my uh, 
our mantra had been victory through paranoia because the assumption is you can't take anything for granted. Here, Donikoski and Brody talk about their goals going into the trial and what they wanted the jury to see. The one thing that I didn't want to do was to make this trial a us-against-them type of trial. I wanted this to be a wrong, wrong versus right. And, and that's what we focused, focused on for our, for our trial preparation, for our trial strategy, to make sure that we said to these people that, you know, we want you to focus on not what color they were, but the fact that, that this was a person that did not commit a crime, and that these people that decided that they did and made these assumptions, as, as uh, Linda said, assumptions and driveway decisions um, that led to his death, that they were wrong. They didn't want to make it us against them. That resonated with me because there was so much room for splits between us's and them's, like people who lived in Brunswick versus outsiders who were just coming into the community. Or the part that has been so central to so much of this case, white people versus black people. In a few weeks, there'll be the federal hate crimes trial with prosecutors trying to prove that racism played a role in Ahmad's death. Yet in the state case, us versus them wasn't part of the prosecution strategy, just right and wrong. Yes, everyone could have been green, and what they did was still wrong. There's a a strategic analysis that we did as a team that looked at the evidence that we would have presented of racial animus, Mm -hmm. the nature and quality of that evidence, how it would be presented, and then, of course, how would it be perceived or taken by the jury pool? And we started this discussion and this thought process and analysis back in 2020. I mean, well before we even got the defense motions, we were discussing, is this what we make this case all about? Because, like I said, if everyone was green, what they did was still illegal, it was still murder. Okay? Because you believe that some guy had been going into someone else's property and trespassing and you see him run down the street, you take a shotgun to him, all illegal. Try and hit him with your pickup truck, a 5,000-pound lethal weapon, all still illegal. So when it came right down to it, it became more of a, well, we just look at the facts and then look at the law. In this case, there was no need to do that because we had Travis McMichael and Greg McMichael's actions on video. We knew exactly what they had done. So there was no need for the state to try and prove to the jury that we knew what was going through their minds at the time. And here's Flynn Brody. We didn't want this mess against them trial. And that's what the defense tried to do throughout the trials to make it a mess against them, a racial trial um, from, from, from the get-go. Um, from all the motions that Golf did and all the arguments that he did about uh, black pastors and, and um, the, the Black Lives Matter movement outside, all those things were basically designed to to get the jury to say, okay, we need to take a side, and and we wanted to make sure we avoided that at all costs. It was interesting to hear Donikowski's take on the horrifying cell phone video of Ahmad's death. If you remember, it was released to a radio station by Brunswick lawyer Alan Tucker at the urging of Greg McMichael. The funny thing is, is we often do have a number of homicides on video, especially when they take place at something like a convenience store or outside in the parking lot of like a mall or something like that. Um, But for it to be released is basically unheard of um, because all of these are ongoing investigations by law enforcement. And so that video is usually 
out of respect, number one, for the victims and for protecting the investigation because you want to make sure your investigation is solid and you don't want anything released like that to the public. With so many people having already seen the video, it created a nightmare for jury selection. In addition to getting to the prosecution, especially in this case when it was released, it became very, very difficult to pick a jury to find juror members who hadn't seen it. Many people following this case believe Greg, Travis, and Roddy would never have been charged had it not been for the release of Roddy's cell phone video. But Donikowski and Brody disagree. The case had already been in and out of the hands of two different district attorneys and was about to be jettisoned by a third before the video was released. That is why the prosecutors believed the case was going to land in the hands of the GBI. So the coincidence of the video being released, the GBI being assigned, it may look like that's what precipitated it, but it was already on track um, for the GBI to be investigating it and to be moving forward with the case. We firmly believe that once the GBI got a hold of it and did the investigation, that they would have brought charges as they as did, even without the video. You got to remember, the video was released by one of the defendant's attorneys um, in order to, what they, I guess, exonerate them, um, but all they did was galvanize the investigation. The biggest moment of the trial occurred when Travis McMichael took the stand as the first witness for the defense. I was prepared for the cross-examination of Travis McMichael because we had been working on that since opening because you're absolutely right. Bob Rubin's opening basically said he's going to take the stand. So we were completely prepared for that. When they called him as the first witness, um, that was a strategic surprise for us because that's not generally how the defense presents their case. But that was their choice to go ahead and present him first. And we just rolled with it. Donikowski says... She hoped the jury was seeing what she was seeing. He was incredibly rehearsed. Uh, they had gone over his talking points with him to the point where I knew what he was going to answer based on his talking points. So, yes, in my opinion, it was incredibly rehearsed. It was incredibly self-serving. And it was all about him. Uh, and I'm not sure that that helped him. But, yes, I feel that they prepped him maybe a little too much. And it, I have no idea. You know, when you're in the battle, you can't tell exactly how it's going. I was hoping that the jury would see how rehearsed it was, that he'd been given talking points, and that he was instructed to repeat those talking points every chance he could. But I never know if the jury picks up on that. I'm just too close to it. Brody says Dunikowski's cross of Travis may have sealed the case for the prosecution. And I know for me, my look at it was a little bented because I knew a lot of the evidence already. And to listen to him um, say things that we knew were complete, total lies. Linda did an awesome job on the cross-examination because she brought out a lot of that stuff. She helped the jury to see that, you know, there's too many inconsistencies in what you're trying to tell us. And also that there, there are things that you're trying to omit that you know that happened that would incriminate you even further. And, and so those things, I, I'm sure the jury was able to see those things and, and, and caused him to lose his credibility. We asked about concerns that Ahmad's character would be attacked during the trial. What would the state have done if Judge Walmsley had let Ahmad's mental health issues and run-ins with the law into evidence? Was I worried about it? The answer is, if the judge had let it in, I would have dealt with it. I would have found a way to turn that negative, and I say that in quotations, into a positive 
and shown the jury how it's not relevant. That, you know, Ahmad, 404B evidence, prior acts, his mental health, completely irrelevant because these defendants didn't know any of that. And them putting that evidence in would have simply been to go, he deserved this. And that, I would have argued, is offensive and not what we're here to do. So I did have a strategy for how to counter that because I had been there before. But Donikoski had never been lead prosecutor on a case so closely followed on live streams all across the country. How was it trying such a case in the national spotlight? I would have handled it the same way because mentally I told myself only three people were watching and one was my sister, so it really didn't matter. She was rooting for me and all was going to be fine. Because you got to realize my experience in Fulton County, for instance, there were several years I tried 12 homicides in 12 cases in 12 months. A couple of years I tried eight homicides in 12 months. And often those homicides, there was no news media. It was the victim's family, the defendant's family, and that was it. That was in basically an almost empty courtroom. So for me, mentally, I was able to tell myself, this is the same exact thing you've been doing for years, Linda. You are presenting the evidence to the jury, and you're seeking justice for the victims who are seated right back over there. And it was, it was very easy to convince myself that no one was watching and it was just the same thing I've always done. Danikowski and Brody shared their thoughts about what was going through their minds when the jury returned this verdict. It was a sense that the jury had followed the law, that they had paid close attention to the evidence, and that they had done the right thing. And it was gratitude that the system worked that the criminal justice system allowed the state to put up its case, put up its evidence, and it allowed the defense to do what they felt they should do in order to get the defendants off the charges to try and disprove our case. But the law was on our side, the evidence was on our side, and when the jury came back unanimously with that verdict, we knew that they had understood what the case was really all about and had done the right thing. When I watched the verdict, I was no longer the district attorney. I was, I was a black African-American male, and to see that the criminal justice system work the way it's supposed to work was such a relief for me um, at that time. And, and that's the one thing that I, I applaud our team, is that the, the spirit that they had, the confidence that they had, that, that the system would work the way it was designed to work, and, and that confidence they, they placed into Wanda and Marcus and their teams. Um, so that they would believe that it would work, and it worked. It was great to finally get their takes on the case, the trial, and the outcome. Now, we interviewed them before the sentencing hearing, so they wouldn't comment on that. And sentencing was almost delayed. In the days leading up to the hearing, federal prosecutors and defense attorneys for Greg and Travis entered into plea negotiations. In the federal case, the two men have newly appointed lawyers. But Bob Rubin, one of Travis's lawyers in the state case, told me their goal was to avoid the federal trial and resolve the case. Rubin says neither Travis nor Greg were about to admit to carrying out a hate crime. They just wanted the ordeal to end. But there would be no plea deal. At the courthouse before the sentencing hearing, attorney Lee Merritt told us the Arbery family rejected it. Before sentencing began in earnest, attorney Kevin Goff told Judge Timothy Walmsley he had filed some motions that morning and wanted to address them. In one, 
He asked Wamsley to declare unconstitutional a mandatory sentence of life in prison for someone who doesn't kill, attempt to kill, or intend to kill the victim in a murder case. He lost that one. Then he moved to vacate Brian's felony murder convictions on double jeopardy grounds. As for what he said next, well, you'll have to hear it for yourselves. Uh, and, and I don't want to be accused of plagiarizing. Uh, uh, an inmate, apparently from the Michigan criminal uh, prison system, um, Mr. Sires, uh sent me, was kind enough to draft a motion for me to file. Uh, and even went out and found Georgia case law. Your Honor, I have to confess, it doesn't quite reconcile with my memory of all of the Georgia case law. Uh, but the argument's pretty good. Goff would later make some strong arguments on Brian's behalf before the imposition of sentence. But filing a motion drafted by a man inside a Michigan prison? I know. That's the first for me, for sure. And no surprise, he lost that one too. The only real question heading into the hearing was whether Walmsley would sentence the McMichaels and Brian to life in prison without the possibility of parole or with the possibility of parole. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, an air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back to Breakdown. I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. Under Georgia law, if you are sentenced to life with parole for murder, you are not eligible for parole until you've served a minimum of 30 years behind bars. Donikoski soon let the three defendants know the state's recommendations. First, Travis McMichael. The maximum, and that is what the state is asking for in this case, is a life without the possibility of parole. The state did file its notice of its intent to seek life without the possibility of parole back in 2020 when this case was first indicted. As for Greg McMichael? The maximum Mr. McMichael is looking at, Mr. Greg McMichael is looking at, is count two. The state is going to be asking for life without the possibility of parole. Finally, Roddy Bryan. In this particular case, the state is going to make a recommendation for Mr. Bryan of life with the possibility of parole. What follows are some gut-wrenching statements from Ahmad's father, sister, and mother. They're quite powerful. Here's Marcus Arbery. Good morning. Good morning. How y'all doing? Right. It's a hard time me and my family. You know something that I just doesn't sit right with me at this time. The man who killed my son has sat in this courtroom every single day next to his father. I'll never get that chance to sit next to my son ever again. Not at a dinner, dinner table, 
Not at a holiday. And not at a wedding. He'll never get to hell. A, a, I pray that no one in this courtroom ever has to do what we had did that buried their child. There's no word for that because no word knows that much pain. Not only did they lynch my son in broad daylight, but they killed him while he was doing what he loved than anything, running. That's when he felt most alive, most free, and they took all of that from him. Marcus says if he could, he'd trade places with Ahmad. We love our son and we will never have him with us to celebrate anything. Thanksgiving, Christmas, or his birthday. His kids should spend the rest of their lives thinking about what they did and what they took from us. And they should do it from behind bars. Because me and my family, we got to live with his death the rest of our life. We'll never see a martyr again. So I feel they should stay behind them bars the rest of their life because they didn't give him a chance. Thank the court. Thank y'all for what y'all did with our family stuck by us. Thank the jury. I give all glory to God. Thank y'all. Next is Jasmine Arbery. Ahmad is my brother, and I would like to tell you a little about him. Ahmad had dark skin that glistened in the sunlight like gold. He had thick, coily hair, and he would often like to twist it. Ahmad had a broad nose, and the color of his eyes was filled with melanin. He was tall with an athletic build. He enjoyed running and had an appreciation for being outdoors. These are the qualities that made these men assume that Ahmad was a dangerous criminal and chased him with guns drawn. To me, those qualities reflected a young man full of life and energy who looked like me and the people I love. Ahmad was funny. He told jokes to lighten the mood because he was a positive thinker. Ahmad had a big personality and never missed the opportunity to let it shine. Ahmad had a future that was taken from him in an instance of violence. He was robbed of his life pleasures, big and small. He would never be able to start a family or even be a part of my daughter's life. The loss of a mind has devastated me and my family. So I'm asking that the man that killed him be given the maximum sentence available to the court. Thank you. 
Thank you, ma'am. Finally, here is Wanda Cooper-Jones. She begins by speaking directly to her son. This verdict doesn't bring you back, but it does help bring closure to this very difficult chapter of my life. I made a promise to you today I laid you to rest. I told you I love you and someday, somehow, I will get you justice. Son, I love you as much today as I did today that you were born. Raising you was the honor of my life and I'm very proud of you. Your Honor, these men have chose to lie and attack my son and his surviving family. They each have no remorse and do not deserve any leniency. This wasn't a case of mistaken identity or mistaken fact. They, cho they chose to target my son because they didn't want him in their community. They chose to treat him differently than other people who frequently visited their community. And when they couldn't sufficiently scare him or intimidate him, they killed him. Then Wanda takes aim at Laura Hoke's closing argument on behalf of Greg McMichael and her controversial comment about Ahmad's long, dirty toenails. He was messy. He sometimes refused to wear socks or take good care of his good clothing. I wish he would have cut and cleaned his toenails before he went out for that jock that day. I guess he would have if he knew he would be murdered. Wanda then asks for no leniency to be given to any of the three men convicted of murdering her son. These men deserve the maximum sentence for their crimes. Ahmad never said a word to them. He never threatened them. He just wanted to be left alone. They were, fully, they were fully committed to their crimes. Let them be full, let them be fully committed f for the consequences. Your Honor, I'm standing here before you as the mother of Ahmaud Arbery, asking you to please give all three defendants who are responsible for the death of my son the maximum punishment in this court which I do believe is life behind bars without the possible chance for parole. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Dunikowski then stands at the podium and addresses Walmsley. Of Travis and Greg, she says they demonstrated a pattern of vigilantism. She brings up the time both of them went with their guns to confront the homeless man living under a nearby bridge, suspecting that maybe he had been burglarizing the neighborhood. 
There was the incident just 12 days before Ahmad's murder when they armed up and went to Larry English's open, unsecured construction site. Their neighbor, Diego Perez, was also armed, and he was already inside the house looking for a possible intruder. It's a miracle they didn't shoot each other. And no one had called the police. All the decisions they made that led up to the death of Ahmaud Arbery. There were so many opportunities to stop, to think. And here's the real problem. Greg McMichael was former law enforcement, as they pointed out repeatedly. And Travis McMichael had served in the Marines. I'm not the Marines, the Coast Guard, as they pointed out repeatedly. So here we have some men who should have known better. Should have known better. Vigilanteism always goes wrong. Dunikowski says the right way to go is to let the police do their jobs. The guys in marked cars, wearing uniforms, with body cams. They had alternatives. They had choices. But instead, Travis McMichael, who stated he was putting his son Everett down for a nap, who stated that his father had all these medical and health problems, didn't say, no, Dad, I'm putting Everett down. No, Dad, you need to stay here. He grabbed his shotgun, which he stated was propped up in a corner in that house, to go with his father. And Greg McMichael was willing to get into that pickup truck and sit in a child's seat to go chase after Mr. Arbery. Greg McMichael attempted to control the narrative from the get-go at the scene. His statements were all about how they were justified, how it was self-defense, how Mr. Arbery attacked his son. Donikoski recalls what Greg said at the scene just minutes after Ahmad was shot and killed. He basically said, no, this guy's an asshole. He is 20 feet from Mr. Arbery's body, referring to Mr. Arbery as an asshole. There's been no remorse shown and certainly no empathy from either man. Because empathy would have said, hey, how must this look to this person that we're chasing? Are we terrifying this person? Are we scaring them? No empathy for the trapped and terrified Ahmaud Arbery. There was thoughtlessness as to the consequences, thoughtlessness as to the alternatives. There was vigilanteism. Denikoski then explains her recommended sentence for Roddy. With regard to Mr. Bryan, his actions speak for themselves. He contributed to the death of Ahmad Arbery in a significant way. The court is familiar with his actions. The court is familiar with his statements, with his level of cooperation with Agent Seacrest afterwards. And given his actions and statements in this case, the state is asking for a life with the possibility of parole sentence. Next, Wamsley hears from the attorneys representing Travis, Gregg, and Roddy. It should be noted that in Georgia, life without parole sentences have pretty much become the harshest punishment anyone can get. A few decades ago, Georgia prosecutors sought and juries handed down 
death sentences to condemned killers with some regularity. But that's not the case today. Only one death sentence has been given in this state in almost eight years, and that was against a woman who acted as her own lawyer, never once addressed the jury, and put up no evidence on her behalf. First up is Travis's lawyer, Bob Rubin. He tells Walmsley that life without parole sentences should be reserved for the worst of the worst. When the facts of the crime show a a darkness of soul, a person so depraved and heinous as to shock the conscience by their actions, or where the offender is such a danger as evidenced by his past conduct, or by his actions post-offense, such that rehabilitation is remote or impossible, those are the offenders who deserve the harshest possible punishment under the law. Those are the offenders who people would argue deserve to spend the rest of their lives in prison. Neither of those scenarios encompasses Travis McMichael or the conduct for which he was convicted. Reuben says Travis did not leave home that day setting out to kill anyone. His goal was to investigate, to find out what this person had been doing. And Reuben concedes the jury found that Travis was not justified in doing what he did. And as reckless as those acts may have been, as Ms. Donikoski pointed out, as thoughtless as they may have been, they are not evidence of a soul so blackened as to deserve to spend the rest of his life in prison. This was not a planned murder. This was not a murder involving torture. It was a fight over a gun that resulted in Mr. Arbery's death. Reuben digs deep to bring back some of the good things Travis has done. Like when he was a younger man, Travis saved the life of a boy who was drowning in a pool. Or when Travis was in the Coast Guard, he saved family members from their boat that was sinking. They don't excuse anything that happened on February 23rd, but when the court is weighing in the scales of justice, what people deserve to spend their lives and then die in prison versus those people who deserve to be punished but then hold out hope for redemption, those are the acts the court should consider. Rubin says nothing in Travis's life shows he will be a danger to society 30 years from now. And he reminds Walmsley that Travis cooperated fully with police after the shooting. If life without parole is reserved for the worst of offenders, those who are so scary, so unpredictable, and so likely to pose a threat in the future, then it is not appropriate for someone like Travis McMichael. The only purpose of a life without parole sentence, Your Honor, is vengeance. It's retribution. And the urge to seek vengeance is strong and understandable in the family. Lord knows if I was in their position, I would be seeking the same thing. But vengeance is not the foundation of our sentencing in our criminal justice system. Redemption is. Redemption is the belief that a person can learn, can grow, and still contribute after punishment. As both Laura Hogue and Kevin Goff would later say about their own clients, Reuben says he can't let Travis stand up and express his remorse over the killing. Not with a federal hate crimes trial set to begin in just a few weeks. Judge, you can send a message that four minutes of conduct 
does not erase a life well lived. And that after punishment, there is opportunity for redemption. An opportunity that Travis can either take advantage of and prove himself worthy or not. And that the parole board can then determine whether he should be released from prison. We are not asking you to do anything, Your Honor, but to agree that we don't know today what the future holds. We're asking you to sentence him to life with the possibility of parole if it's earned. Laura Hoog is up next to speak for Greg. The sentence the judge hands down will make little difference for him. He'll get credit for the two years he's already spent in custody awaiting trial, so he'd only be eligible for parole when he's 94 if he gets a life with parole sentence. But Hoag presses on. She says this of the Glynn County jury and its decision to convict Greg of felony murder, not malice murder. Over two days, they came back with a unanimous verdict that says, in effect, Greg McMichael did not leave his home that day hoping to kill. He did not view his son firing that shotgun with anything other than fear and sadness. What this jury found is that this was an unintentional act, one that Greg McMichael did not plan, devise, attempt, or seek to have the result that happened. So if life without parole is a sentence that is held for only the worst of the worst, it simply can't be a sentence for a person who never intended that tragic result that took place on February 23rd. Hoag reminds Wamsley that Greg had served three decades in law enforcement, first as a Glenn County police officer and detective, later as an investigator for the district attorney's office. And a point of pride for him was that he never had to fire his service revolver. There was no evidence of anything like that. There were never any complaints about him being aggressive, about him seeking to take matters in his own hands without seeking the appropriate backups. He was not a gun-toting, aggressive officer. Hogue says Greg held those law enforcement jobs to serve and protect his community. And he was known for his kindness to those who'd lost loved ones and for going the extra mile to help solve a case. So yes, that's how I stand before you, Your Honor. Representing Greg McMichael, who has now been convicted of murder, and I say without hesitation, he remains a man of goodness. For 66 years, I calculated that's 24,105 days of life on this planet. And we're here, not for a small matter, not as if, it, if all of the other erases what happened on that day, but we are here for a driveway decision to pursue a Mott Arbery and a five-minute chase that ended in tragedy. He needs to be punished. But how that contrast between a life of goodwill and service 
and the bad decisions that were made that day that resulted in a tragedy that the jury said unanimously he never intended could be could end up in the state seeking the sort of sentence that is devised for the worst of the worst is not consistent. Kevin Goff then speaks on behalf of Roddy. If this were any other case, when it comes to sentencing, I'd be turning to Ms. Donikowski and saying, judge what she said. Um, I, uh, I agree in a lot of ways that uh, uh, the sentence recommended by the state should be the judgment of the court. But this is not a normal case. Goff says Roddy never intended to kill Ahmad, and he had no idea that McMichaels had guns until only moments before the shooting. You know, Mr. Bryan isn't the one uh, who brought a gun. He was unarmed. Uh, and I think that reflects his intentions and it reflects a, a significantly lesser state of culpability. Goff says Roddy has already expressed remorse over Ahmad's death. He did so in a national TV interview, and he told investigators that after the shooting, too. He also said he regretted joining in the chase in the first place. And, Your Honor, I think when you take those statements in conjunction with the rest of the evidence in this case, Mr. Bryan has done everything he could do, short of confessing to committing felonies on national television, uh, that he is remorseful and regretful at this tragic loss of life. Uh, and it's difficult for me to conceive what more he could do. Now, is the Arbery family going to be satisfied with that? No, they don't have to be satisfied with that. And, you know, you have to give credit. Three members of his family came up here and probably did uh, what were the most difficult things they've ever had to do is to come speak here in uh, in this court on national television effectively uh, about the death of their child and and their brother. and that's difficult. But whether or not they accept Mr. Bryan's expression of sorrow and remorse for the death of Mr. Arbery, it's for the court to decide whether Mr. Bryan has expressed remorse and, if he has, what to do about it. And the court may well decide there's nothing the court can do about it. Goff then makes a novel request. He asks that Roddy be sentenced under a Georgia statute that relieves the mandatory minimum parole restrictions. This would give the state parole board the ability to parole Roddy earlier than the 30-year minimum term if it sees fit to do so. Now, Mr. Bryan still has a long road here to establish the redemption and the rehabilitation that would justify his ever being released from prison. So, Uh, As I've explained to Mr. Bryan, this doesn't guarantee him that he would do one day less in prison than he would otherwise do under the sentence that the court is about to impose. But what it does do is provide the opportunity for the parole board to exercise its discretion in deciding whether to release Mr. Bryan when they believe it would be appropriate and not based on some arbitrary preconceived mandatory minimum time period before he could be considered. Donikowski returns to the podium to give her rebuttal. As for Goff's request, she says the statute he cited specifically says it can't be given to someone receiving a life sentence. So there was that. Donikowski then turns to father and son McMichael, 
She says what they did was incredibly reckless. They weren't performing some neighborhood watch function. Not somebody running after people in a residential neighborhood where there are women and children and people out walking on a regular basis. This was a Sunday afternoon. It's a miracle they didn't run into families taking a walk that day. She then reminds the court what Greg did in the months after the shooting. So the next point, that Greg McMichael has shown no remorse or empathy because he's unable to. Well, Greg McMichael was a law enforcement officer, but what he did on May 5th of 2020 was release evidence in an ongoing investigation into himself and to his son. Greg McMichael's the one who released the video to the media. He went to Mr. Bryan and said, hey, give me your phone. I'm going to take it to my lawyer, took it to his lawyer and had his lawyer release it publicly because he believed it was going to exonerate him. That's interference with administration of justice. Yes, we did not charge him with obstruction or anything like that. But the fact of the matter is, is this is someone who was in law enforcement for years and actually actively pursued evidence in a case against him to be released to the media because he believed that that video showed he and his son were not guilty of anything. That's two months afterwards. The state's position is he hasn't changed his mind. The state's position is he and his son still believe they didn't do anything wrong. And that is a lack of remorse or empathy. As for the contention Greg didn't intend to kill Ahmad? And I apologize for this once again, Your Honor, but stop or I'll blow your head off. I think that really advances the progression of the crime. You're threatening to murder somebody. You're threatening to kill him if he does not stop. As for Travis, Donikowski says the jury convicted him of malice murder, finding he had an abandoned and malignant heart. She also refers to the racist text messages he'd sent, the ones that came out in the bond hearing. In addition, I will remind the court that there's an old saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And it's great that they had such good intentions to protect the neighborhood. But the thoughtlessness, the lack of vision to know how this could go terribly, terribly wrong. It was a culmination of vigilantism, a we get to go ahead and play law enforcement even though we're not, and that we're gonna go out and confront people and we're gonna take our guns to go do it without any real understanding or consideration of the consequences. At this time, for Travis McMichael, these are the reasons that we are asking for life without the possibility of parole. This is Breakdown from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.
Welcome back to Breakdown. Judge Walmsley says he wants to take a break and collect his thoughts before handing down the sentences. He returns about 20 minutes later. As we all now know, based upon the verdict that was rendered in this court in November, Ahmaud Arbery was murdered. It's a tragedy. It's a tragedy on many, many levels. On February 23rd of 2020, almost two years ago, a resident of Glynn County, a graduate of Brunswick High, a son, a brother, a young man with dreams was gunned down in this community. As we understand it, he left his home apparently to go for a run and he ended up running for his life. Wamsley then refers to the chase which took about five minutes. And the only way I could think to do so, maybe a little theatrical, but I think it's appropriate. I want us all get a concept of time. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna sit silently for one minute. And that one minute represents a fraction of the time that Ahmaud Arbery was running in Satilla Shores. The courtroom stood silent for 60 seconds. That's approximately a minute. Again, the chase that occurred in Satilla Shores occurred over about a five minute period. And when I thought about this, I thought from a lot of different angles and I kept coming back to the terror that must have been in the mind of the young man running through Satilla Shores. Wamsley then shares his thoughts about what Greg did. In my opinion, Greg McMichael very early on in this tried to establish a narrative. He made comments like, Ahmaud Arbery was trapped like a rat stop or I'll blow your, and I won't repeat it again, head off. He effectively admitted that he wasn't sure what Ahmaud Arbery had done wrong. Quote, I don't think the guy has actually stolen anything out there, or if he did, it was early in the process. But he keeps going back over and over again into this damn house. Again, back to the narrative. Told Travis, you have no choice. Told another individual at the side or at the scene, this guy ain't no shuffler. This guy's an asshole. Commented that he wanted him, Ahmad Arbery, to know that we weren't playing. If I could have gotten a shot at the guy, I would have shot him. Then Wamsley addresses Travis. Travis McMichael claims he was in shock. But it's interesting because he talks about his concern for his child and his own well-being. Part of this was while the victim was actually laying there in the street. Commented, this is the worst day of my life. Well, uh, I think it's been touched on here today. Uh, there were other individuals that were impacted. I look at the video of um, this incident. When I say the video, I think everybody knows what we're talking about, but there was one part of it that struck me as absolutely chilling. And that is, I believe it's in the enhanced video provided by the GBI, there's a frame where I believe Ahmaud Arbery, it looks to be, if he's 20 yards out, that may be close, 30 yards out. 
It's the frame of Travis McMichael uh, lifting the shotgun to fire at Ahmaud Arbery. And you watch that with context. I want to say context after hearing the evidence in this case. Again, thinking about a young man that had been running at that point for almost five minutes. Truly disturbing. In this case, getting back to the video, again, after Ahmaud Arbery fell, the McMichaels turned their backs. It's, a, again, a disturbing image, and they walked away. This was a killing. It was callous, and it occurred, as far as the court is concerned, based upon the evidence, because confrontation was being sought. As for Roddy, Wamsley says he's different than Travis and Greg. It is obvious from the beginning uh, that he questioned the tragedy that had occurred at the scene. It was on, uh, I believe, I can't remember whose body cam, but the body cam, in fact, questioning whether or not what had occurred had occurred, and then took steps early on in this process, I think, that demonstrated that he had grave concerns that what had occurred should not have occurred. There may be some differences, but it does not change the fact that was it not for the fact that Mr. Bryan used his vehicle in a way to uh, impede Mr. Aubrey's uh, course of travel, this may not have ever occurred. And that is sufficient for felony murder. Wamsley says there are some who believe an offender's sentencing will bring closure. But he says he doesn't believe it really does. He says this day's proceeding is really an exercise in accountability. And he finishes by saying this. I'm not sure how this comes across, say it anyway. I think ultimately, with regard to the murder of Maude Arbery, it, all, it holds us all accountable. I've read somewhere, and I don't remember where it was, that at a minimum, Maude Arbery's death should force us, or his death should force us to consider expanding our definition of what a neighbor may be and how we treat them. I argue that maybe a neighbor is more than the people who just own property around your house. I believe that is, I also believe that in assuming the worst in others, we show our worst character. Assuming the best in others is always the best course of action. And maybe those are the grand lessons from this case. I will let others spend as much time as they want writing about it and talking about it. But those are my general thoughts with regard to this case and sentencing. Wamsley then hands down the sentences. Life in prison without parole for Travis. Life in prison without parole for Greg. Life in prison with the possibility of parole for Roddy. Roddy's now 52, so with getting two years credit for the time he's already been in custody, Roddy will be eligible for parole when he's 80 years old. After the hearing, outside the courthouse, DA Flynn Brody stepped up to a bank of microphones surrounded by his prosecution team. For a young African-American male, this day means quite a bit because it tells me that America can meet its promise, that there is liberty and justice for all here. I want to give big time credit to my legal team, um, 
Linda, Paul, Larissa, who's not here. You, you saw 14 days, you saw 14 days of work in the courtroom. But before that work in the courtroom, there was 18 months of hard preparation and work to make sure that we uncovered the facts, we uncovered the truth, and were prepared to present the truth so that we could find justice for this family. I have to give credit to Wanda and Marcus. Because they knew the son that they raised. And they knew when they heard the story of what happened that day, that it was a bold-faced lie. And they were determined to find out the truth. And you heard the truth over the 14 days here in this courtroom. You heard the verdict of the, of the jurors. And of course, there's Wanda Cooper-Jones. I sat in that courtroom for five weeks straight. But I knew that we would come out with a victory. Yes. I never doubted it. And I knew that today would come. When, when it would come, I didn't know, but I know today would finally come. Yeah, amen. Mm -hmm. I just want to say thank you all who supported me, who stood with me through this very long, very, very long hard fight. Yes. Back when Ahmad was killed on the 23rd of February, the, the, the city of Brunswick thought that I would have to fight this fight alone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they chose to ignore me because they thought they would have to face me alone. But they didn't know that I had you guys to stand with me. Amen. Thank you for standing with me. Thank you for standing with my family and I. Again, thank you and we love you. Thank you. As always, thank you so much for listening. Of course, there's the federal hate crimes trial starting next month but don't expect to hear any audio or see any video footage from that trial. Cameras and recording equipment are prohibited inside the federal courthouse. But you can follow the trial on our website, AJC.com. And if you really want to support local journalism, especially our journalism, please subscribe to the AJC newspaper or AJC.com. One more thing, in case you missed it. We recently dropped the final episode of Breakdown Season 4, Murder Below the Netline. It's quite an ending to quite a story. I strongly encourage you to give it a listen. Please be safe and take care. If you haven't been vaccinated, please, please do so for all of us. And get that booster too. I got mine. And I got mine. Until next time, I'm Bill Rankin. And I'm Asia Simone Burns. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted by Bill Rankin. Produced by Asia Simone Burns and Bill Rankin. Edited by Jennifer Brett and Jay Black. Music by Bo Emerson and Billy Guin. Sound design by Asia Simone Burns and Jay Black. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Pete Corson, and Zach McGee. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. Ocean Breeze. 
tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.